As I said, people of God, our text for this morning is Psalm 10. Just a couple of notes about the psalm before we begin to look at the details. First of all, this psalm, like Psalm 9, is completely a petitionary prayer on the part of the psalmist. But it's different from the petitionary prayers that we find in the first nine psalms. Actually, of those first nine psalms, six of them contain petitionary prayers of one sort or another. And in all of those petitionary prayers, we find the psalmist making petition specifically for himself. For example, in Psalm 3, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Or in Psalm 6, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Here in Psalm 10, the psalmist never speaks in the first person. Never prays explicitly, anyway, for himself. All his prayers are in the third person. Those prayers are found especially in the last part of the psalm, verses 12 and following. For example, verse 12, do not forget the humble. And then again, at the end of verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. So throughout the psalm, it's entirely in the third person. Now with a very few exceptions, though, this third person is singular. Does not come across in our translation, but it is clear in the Hebrews. There are, there are a few exceptions, verses 10, and I think verse 12 and verse 17 as well. The psalmist mentions the humble and the poor in the plural, but for the most part, he speaks in the third person, singular. This along with verse 1, it seems to me, indicate that the psalmist is, in spite of never mentioning himself, and in spite of not using the first person, praying actually for himself. That's especially clear, I think, in verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? That seems to be a very personal matter with the psalmist. Another interesting note is that with the one exception of the second part of verse 2, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, the psalmist speaks of the wicked man also in the singular. All the other references to the wicked man in the psalm, other than that one, are in the singular. So it seems here that we have a single righteous man praying, by and large, against a single wicked man. The second thing we want to note about this psalm is that the psalmist gives to himself throughout the psalm various names. He calls himself, for example, the poor, the innocent, the helpless, the humble, the fatherless, and the oppressed. Six different names he gives himself. Those names that he gives himself are to be understood in a spiritual manner rather than a physical manner. When he calls himself poor, he does not mean that he's physically poor, but that he's poor in relation to his enemies. That is, his enemies have more resources, more ability to carry out their plans than he does. 
His innocence is, of course, the innocence of his cause. He doesn't claim to be without sin, but he claims that in this case, anyway, of the persecution of his enemy at this time, he is innocent. He's helpless because he has nothing with which to defend himself. He's humble because he depends wholly on God for his help. Even the word fatherless, I think, must be understood in a spiritual manner rather than an earthly manner. It doesn't mean to claim he's an orphan, parentless, but rather that he is like an orphan. He has no one to defend him, to come to his help here in the world. And of course, that he's oppressed means that his enemy desires his spiritual destruction. The names, then, are used here in the psalm in the same way that our Lord uses similar names in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and in the same way also that our Lord uses these words in his letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. He says to the Laodiceans there, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's consider the psalm then under the theme, a poor man asks for help against a proud and murderous wicked man. A poor man asks for help against a proud and murderous wicked man. We're going to look first at the summary of the psalm that we have in verses 1 and 2. Second, we're going to look at the character and behavior of the wicked man. That's verses 3 to 11. And finally, at the psalmist's petitions, verses 12 to 18. We begin then with verses 1 and 2, which I call the summary of this psalm. It's not unusual, by the way, to find that the first one or two verses of a psalm form a kind of summary of the psalm, that the psalmist gathers up the main thoughts of the psalm into a couple of verses, even maybe one verse, before he returns to the beginning and starts to lay out the details of his complaints and of his petitions, or whatever the case may be. And that's what we have here, I think, in verses 1 and 2. A kind of summary of what is stated in verses 3 to 11, and then again in verses 12 to 18. Verse 1 is, in this connection then, a statement of his fundamental problem. And though he does not actually refer to this matter again throughout the psalm, this whole idea that you find in verse 1 governs and underlies everything else that he has to say. It's very important that we get hold of that. This is a very important thought in the psalm. Why do you stand afar off, Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? This is his fundamental problem. He has an enemy who's persecuting him, and he talks about that enemy in verse 2. But the problem is not so much with the enemy as with the fact that God has forsaken him, that God stands afar off, that God has hidden his face. He cries to God, and God does not hear him. He seeks God and cannot find him. God has shielded from him the light of his countenance so that he has no knowledge of God's favor. He's isolated. He's cut off from God. 
And this is very, very distressing to him. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? So that's the fundamental problem. And we'll have to keep coming back to that idea as we look at the rest of the psalm. Then in verse 2, the first part of the verse, he summarizes actually verses 3 to 11. He summarizes it with a very simple statement. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Both of those words in the singular. The wicked man in his pride persecutes the poor man. And then in the second part of verse 2, he summarizes verses 12 to 18. His prayer against the wicked man, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So the psalmist there in the second part of verse 2, let's note two things here. First, asks for justice. And he asks for no more than justice. That also is important. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. He doesn't ask that God exceed in his punishment of the wicked what the wicked was trying to do to him. Just that the wicked be caught in the plots which they have devised. He knows that God's justice is an exacting justice, a justice which repays according to deserts, and he does not desire that God's justice go beyond that exacting character. But he also, and we'll find this again and again in the Psalms, of course, does not ask for a personal revenge. He commits himself entirely to the Lord and asks that the Lord execute judgment. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. That then about the summary of the psalm in the first couple of verses. In the next part of the psalm, verses 3 to 11, the psalmist describes the character and behavior of the wicked man. And we may subdivide that into two sections. Verses 3 to 6 describe, describe his character. And verses 7 to 11, his behavior. Now again, there are some things we need to note about this section in general. First of all, this the psalmist has a lot to say here about the wicked man, doesn't he? In fact, this is rather unusual. When you look at what the Psalms have to say about the wicked, usually these references are passing references or very brief descriptions of what the wicked man is doing or what he's like. This Psalm has a very lengthy description of what he's like and of what he's doing. The very strong focus then on the wicked man's behavior. In the second place, in these verses, the psalmist talks three times about what is in the wicked man's heart. First, in verse 6, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, I shall never be in adversity. Then in verse 11, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see. And then again in verse 13, he has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Three times then, he refers to what the wicked man says in his heart. 
And we should notice that in each of those statements that the wicked man makes in his heart, they're not statements then that he necessarily makes publicly with his mouth, but statements that he makes within himself, things of which he convinces himself inwardly, he adds to or explains the prior statement. His basic assertion or his basic conviction about himself is, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Obviously, the wicked man is prospering in his ways right now. He's doing good and he's feeling good about himself. He's happy with the way things are going. And he says, this isn't going to change. I shall not be moved. I will never be in adversity. Neither God nor my enemies will be able to shake me from this place in which I currently found my, find myself. That is his folly. He thinks that because he currently prospers in his ways, his ways will always be prosper, be prosperous. He's able to say that to himself, to convince himself of that because of what he says in verse 6. And here, of course, he's completely lying to himself. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. In other words, God's not aware of what I'm doing. I'm going on in this way. I can even acknowledge secretly to myself that my way is evil. But God's not aware of it. God hides his face. He will never see. And then in verse 13, because God does not see, he won't require an account. I'll never have to answer for what I do. There will be no day of reckoning for me. This is his folly. That he thinks that he can continue in his way, uninterrupted, unjudged, having no day of reckoning in the future. That his prosperity will last forever. The other thing that we want to notice about the character of the wicked man in general here is the emphasis on his pride. The psalmist makes the first reference to his pride in verse 2. The wicked, in his pride, persecutes the poor. Again in verse 3. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. And again in verse 4. The wicked, in his proud countenance, does not seek God. But that pride is also, of course, clear in the fact that he says that he will never be moved. He will never be in adversity. That's a very proud assertion, especially given, given all the conflicting evidence in the history of the world and probably in his own history. It's evident also from the way he sneers at his enemies. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. The pride of this man is very, very strong. And very, very clear. He acts against the psalmist 
because of his pride. He's moved by pride. Now there are a couple of things we should learn from that. First from this arrogant assertion that God will not require an account. That his ways are firm and unshakable. There is in that assertion, of course, a practical atheism. It's not a theoretical or philosophical atheism. The man here who's, who's talking here does not deny the existence of God. He acknowledges the existence of God, but his atheism is a practical atheism because what he's fundamentally saying throughout these verses is God's unaware. God has nothing to do with my life. I can go on in whatever way I choose and not have to reckon with the fact of God's existence. If he exists, it doesn't matter to me. That kind of conviction that God's existence doesn't matter is fundamental to any presumptuous sin. And certainly the psalmist, or the wicked man, is guilty of presumptuous sin here in this psalm. His pride, his assertions of his heart, his activity against the poor man, all of these are presumptuous sins. That is, sins committed in knowing rebellion against the commandments of God. Acts of defiance against him. Whenever we commit a presumptuous sin, people of God, there must lie at the root of that sin the conviction that God's not going to deal with it. That we can get away with it. That there will be no day of reckoning for us because of that sin. And the really striking thing about this practical atheism, this feeling that he can get away with whatever he's doing, is that from the psalmist's perspective, he seems completely justified. God is not acting against him. God has hidden his face from the psalmist. God stands far away. He seems unaware of what the wicked man is doing. The wicked man roots his belief then that God will not act against him in what has been happening. He has been going on in this way for some time and God has taken no action against him. And so he says, well, if that's the case, then I need to worry. I can continue and God will not act. And from the psalmist's perspective, of course, this is exactly what distresses him again. Not so much again that the wicked is persecuting him, but that the wicked persecutes him without any consequences. That God stands far, not just from the wicked man, seemingly unaware of what the wicked man is doing, but that God stands far from him and hides his face from him. But then also, people of God, we should look at that pride of the wicked man and be warned about pride in ourselves. Pride is, like the love of money, a root of all evil. It's one of those fundamental motivations behind many, many sins and sins of many, many 
different kinds. It produces, especially in this case, hatred of the neighbor. We love, people of God, to prove ourselves superior to our neighbors. We love to show ourselves superior by gossip, by contemptuous words, by jokingly referring to his follies and stupidities, by injuring him, not only with our words, but sometimes with our activities. Very often behind this hatred of the neighbor lies the idea that we are better, or the motivation that we want to prove ourselves better than he. The wicked man here is motivated with pride. Pride against God, yes, because he's asserting himself against God, against God's commandments, asserting secretly in his own heart things which are false about God, but pride over against also this poor man. He thinks himself superior, and he means to prove himself superior by crushing this wicked man, this poor man. Let's look then at the details of what the psalmist says about the wicked man's character in verses 3 to 6. When we look through those verses, we find that the psalmist refers to the wicked man's desire, to his countenance, to his thoughts, to his ways, to his sight, to his heart, to his mouth, and to his tongue. He talks then about many different aspects of this wicked man's being and behavior. And everything he says about all those different things is evil. He finds no good in any of them. In his desire, in his countenance, his thoughts, his ways, his sight, his heart, his mouth, and his tongue. It's quite a long list. Let's look then at what the psalmist actually says about this character of the wicked man. He begins in verse 3 by saying, The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Actually, better, his soul's desire. What is that desire of the wicked man's soul? There's a specific desire that he has in mind, it seems. Well, I think the way to get at it is to go down to verse 17 here in the psalm, where we read, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. The desire of the humble is deliverance from this wicked man. I think we may take it then that the desire of the wicked man referred to in verse 3 is the destruction of the poor man. Now when the, when the wicked man considers this desire of his soul to destroy, to ruin the poor man, the wicked man boasts about it. He finds nothing dishonorable or wicked in it. He thinks it's wonderful. He thinks it's something praiseworthy that he desires the destruction of this poor man. 
The second thing that the psalmist says about his character is that he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. I think the point of that statement that the psalmist makes there is that this wicked man does exactly the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing. He should bless the Lord and renounce the greedy. And instead, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. He does not seek God. That's the third thing that's said about him. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. He does not ask him for things, because as far as he's concerned, God has nothing to do with his life. He does not admit any obligations to him. He does not admit any claims of God on him. He will have nothing to do with God. He rejects any involvement of God in his life. And in fact, he goes so far even as to suppress the knowledge of God in his own mind. God is not in none of his thoughts. He doesn't reckon with God in his thoughts. He moves that thought of God aside as he makes his plans and does everything that he wants to do from day to day. He, by his philosophies, by his perversion of science, by his pleasure-seeking, and all these other things, seeks to put away from himself the knowledge of God. He does not want God in his thoughts because God's presence in his thoughts would be an accusing presence. Now, in verse 5, the psalm says his ways are always prospering. If you look at the commentaries about that statement, you find that there's a lot of disagreement about what that statement actually means and what's the proper translation of that statement. It's not easy to come to a conclusion, but I prefer, people of God, to translate it, his ways are always twisted or his ways are always perverted. I'm not sure that that's the correct translation. It could be prospering here too. The, the word is very uh, difficult to translate. But I think probably better his ways are always twisted. Next, your judgments are far above out of his sight. What does that mean? Your judgments are far above out of his sight. That's kind of an obscure statement to us, I think. Well, I think the answer to that is this. First, God's judgments are taking place all around us, all the time. When God acts in the world, God is acting in judgment, in righteousness, in justice. All of his acts are acts of judgment. They're always there. And when we look at the works of God, whether they're works in creation, or works with the nations, or works in our own lives, or works in the lives of wicked men, or whatever, whatever works of God we're looking at, we ought to see that those works of God are works of judgment. He's always the judge, and he's always the righteous judge. Well, as far as the wicked man is concerned, though all those works of judgment of God are taking place all around him, he can't see them. They're above him. His eyes are wholly earthbound. The judgments of God are out of his sight. This is why he can persuade himself that God's not going to act against him. He can't see that all around him, God's judgments are happening every day. 
Those judgments are far above out of his sight. He sneers at his enemies. He has enemies. But he thinks himself so superior to his enemies that he can safely be contemptuous of them. They're never going to have any effect on my life. And so we come back again to that fundamental conviction, that fundamental folly, that fundamental act of pride. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Now in verses 7 to 11 then, the psalmist describes not the character of the wicked man, but his behavior. First, the behavior of his mouth. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. There's nothing but cursing, deceit, and oppression in his mouth. It's full of that. As if he has sat down at a table and has stuffed his mouth to its full capacity with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. I think what that means is that the trouble and iniquity are always there in his mouth, ready to come out. They, as it were, are under his tongue, but at any moment, ready to be spoken. Then in verses 8 to 10, the psalmist talks about this wicked man's attacks on himself. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor, and he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Now what can we say about that? Well, first of all, people of God... It's clear that under the metaphor of a lion lying in ambush for prey, the psalmist is talking about this wicked man lying in wait for him. That is, ready to pounce on him at the first opportunity. He's always lurking around. He's always standing by, observing the psalmist's behavior always looking for something to criticize, always looking for something to attack, always looking for some way to do damage. He lies in wait. There's a very strong emphasis in these verses on his secrecy. Notice that three times the psalmist uh, repeats that word. Verse 8b, In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly Fixed on the helpless, he lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. And the intensity of his attack, the intensity of his pursuit of his purpose against the, wicked, against the poor man also comes out very clearly, especially in the repetition of certain words and phrases here. First, of course, that word secretly, which we've already seen, is repeated three times. His eyes secretly set. He's secretly lying in wait in the secret places. 
He murders the innocent. But the repetition also of that lies in wait. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. And then the repetition of that catching the poor. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So you have this chain of repetitions. Secretly, lies in wait, catches the poor. This chain of repetitions which show us how intent the wicked man is on accomplishing his purpose against the poor man. So he crouches like a lion. He lies low to keep himself out of sight as much as possible that the helpless one may fall by his strength. The word strength there is actually in the plural that the helpless one may fall by his strong ones. And there are different speculations in the commentaries about what that means. Some think it means that the wicked man has helpers, strong helpers, that he directs in his attacks on the poor man. Some think that this refers to the metaphor of the lion lying in wait and his strong ones as his jaws and his claws and his paws that he uses against poor man. I actually prefer that latter interpretation that the helpless one may fall by his strong claws. In all of this, now again, rooted in his conviction, this behavior, this freedom of his behavior against the poor man, rooted in his conviction that God is forgotten. God hides his face. He will never see Now before we go on, people of God, to the last part of the psalm, I'd like to take a few minutes briefly to show how this psalm applied to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not easy, it's not difficult, that is, to show how relevant this psalm must have been to our Lord Jesus Christ during his whole ministry. I read from Luke 11 because at the end of that chapter we read about their lying in wait for him. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. These scribes and Pharisees and other leaders of the Jews were always present in all of Jesus' ministry throughout Judea and Galilee. They were always hanging around. They were always looking for something to criticize, ready to pounce on any word that they thought was not right, ready to take action against him if they thought he did anything that was not right, always accusing him, always trying some way to undermine him, always ultimately plotting his destruction. Let's just refer now to some of the things that they said about him first. And this is some of the things that you find in all of the four Gospels. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of consorting with sinners. They said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, that he broke the Sabbath, that he transgressed the tradition of the fathers, that he accepted unlawful praise, that he wrongfully asserted authority, 
that he was a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, that he perverted the nation, that he forbade the people to pay taxes to Caesar, that he stirred up the people, that he deceived the people, that he was possessed with a demon, that he was, in fact, a demon, and that he was a sinner. Of all these things that they said against him, it's clear their mouth was full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under their tongue was iniquity and trouble. In addition to that, they took action against him. They tried to ensnare him in its word. Remember when they came to him asking him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They were trying to trap him in such a way that he could not escape. They came to him with that woman, also taken in adultery, and said, what should we do? Should we execute her according to the law of Moses, or should we obey the Romans? They plotted many times throughout his ministry to kill him. Several times they became so angry with him that they took up stones to stone him on the spot. They derided his teaching. They questioned his authority. They tried to frighten him by saying, Herod's after you. And Jesus said to them, go tell that old fox that I'll do what I please until my work is finished. They threatened his disciples with excommunication. They bought Judas for 30 pieces of silver. They sought false testimony against him before his trial. They mocked and beat him at his trial. They chose Barabbas rather than him. They successfully pressured Pontius Pilate to condemn and crucify him. They mocked him while he was on the cross. They lied about his resurrection. And even after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, they continued their persecution of his disciples. They never stopped. They never gave up. They were always there, like lions, crouching, lying in wait, sitting in ambush, looking for an opportunity to destroy him. Not at all hard, people of God, to believe that this psalm, words similar to it, were often on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they should also be on our lips, because he said to us, if they hate me, they will also hate you. Let's look finally at the last part of the psalm, verses 12 to 18, where we find the psalmist's petitions against this wicked man. First in verses 12 and 13. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. This is a reference, isn't it, to the fact that God has hidden himself from the psalmist. And he stands far off. He's not helping not active in the psalmist's defense. The psalmist is cut off from him, cut off from the knowledge of his favor, cut off from his love. Why do you stand so far off, O God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Arise! Lift up your hand! Don't forget! And the ground that he gives for this petition is why should That's the effect of it, I think. Why should the wicked renounce God? Why should he be able to say in his heart, you will not require an account? 
Why should he be able to continue to act so with impunity against me? Why do you not come up against him and bring upon him the judgment that he deserves? Oh God, lift up your hand. The second petition shows a shift somewhat in his thinking. Because he goes from this urgent crying, this distress, to an expression of conviction. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. Now, the first statement there, in verse 14, is a flat contradiction of what the wicked said in verse 11. God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see. The psalmist says, you have seen, you observe trouble and grief. The wicked thinks that because God is not active, God does not see. The psalmist says he's not active, at least at the moment, but he does see. And he sees in order to repay. That contradicts what the wicked man says in verse 13. He said in his heart, he will not require an account. The wicked man said, the poor man says, you will. You observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. Therefore, the helpless one commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. He expresses his conviction, his confidence in God. And that's a very striking thing in light of God's abandonment of him. Remember, he has no knowledge of God's favor. He cannot see the light of God's countenance. He's groping in darkness. He's filled with pain and distress. But his faith is not shaken. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. And then, after that expression of confidence, he makes his petition. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. That is, take away from him his power to do harm to me. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The wicked man says in his heart, God doesn't see. And because God doesn't see, he will find no wickedness in me. The psalmist says, yes, you're right. He won't find any wickedness in you. But it will be because he has searched out all your wickedness to the very depths of your heart until there is no more to find. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. And then in verses 16 to 18, the psalmist expresses the reasons for his confidence. The first reason is the Lord is king. He reminds himself, and in spite of what the wicked says and believes in his heart, the Lord reigns. The Lord has not abandoned his authority. He has not abandoned the exercise of his judgments. He has not abdicated his throne. He reigns forever and ever. The second thing, ground of his confidence, is the nations have perished out of his land. Here the psalmist goes back to the history of Israel. From the time of Joshua all the way through the history of David. When God, by many marvelous works, in those 450 or 500 years of history, 
drove all those heathen nations out of the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and made that land the land of his people. The nations have perished out of his land. Though the psalmist himself has no experience of God's goodness, has not yet seen God active on his behalf, he reminds himself of all that God did for his people in the past. The third ground of his confidence is, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. I've been crying and praying to you for a long time now, and you have stood afar off and you have hid your face. But I know that you have heard. You will prepare their heart. That's the fourth ground. And that's a very interesting idea, isn't it? You will prepare their hearts. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means by that, people of God, is this. That it is God who creates in the psalmist this earnest longing after God. This earnest desire for salvation. This constant seeking of God. This crying to God. It is God who by his spirit working in the heart of the psalmist stirs the psalmist up to his prayers and gives to him the confidence that he has expressed in the earlier verses of this psalm. You prepare their heart. This is a very brief statement that's similar, I think, to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. We should turn there for a minute. Romans chapter 8 Verses uh, 26 and following. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, what's the point that Paul's making there? Well, he's saying there, first of all, there are times in our lives when we're so troubled or so distressed or whatever the case may be, that we don't know how to pray. We want to pray. We're filled with longing. We're groaning about our troubles, but we don't know how to come to God, how to bring our needs to God. The Apostle Paul says there is that that groaning, that wordless groaning, when we are unable to pray, is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit himself makes groanings for us, makes intercession for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. God prepares his heart. Likewise, this, uh, or then in verse 27, now he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit. In other words, in searching our hearts, in listening to our groanings, God hears the mind of the Spirit. He knows what we need, even though we're not able to ask Him for it. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. He's saying God prepares our hearts. He prepares our prayers. He knows what we need. In a sense, therefore, when He's hearing our prayers, He's listening to Himself. It's the work of the Spirit. How can He not hear 
when it's his own spirit who's crying to him, making intercession on our behalf. So then, people of God, God does sometimes hide himself from us, makes our way difficult, painful, troublesome, filled with doubt and fear. He seems far off. He leads us in isolation. And not because we have sinned, necessarily. He does that too sometimes, of course. That's a consequence of sin. But sometimes he withdraws his presence even when we're obedient. So that we cry, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in trying times of trouble? The lesson that we need to learn from this psalm, people of God, is that we must not, even in such circumstances, despair. The psalmist continues in a powerful conviction that God hears and that God will require an account from this evil man and will come to the rescue of his troubled people. Having heard the preaching of God's word, let's say amen.